Okay, so we're back for Thursdays uh, at noon, and if you got your Bible, uh, we're going to be in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 still, verses 13 through 17, and I hope to uh, do this well and get all this in because I got a lot. So we're going to read it, and then we're going to pray, and we're going to jump in. Uh, so 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 17 says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So we're going to pray, and then uh, we'll start. So let's pray. Uh, God, we thank you. Uh, for the chance to uh, have your word uh, for us, in front of us. And God, I pray that you'd open our eyes and open our ears to, uh, to see Jesus today, that you'd help us to uh, understand the gospel, help us to set our hope fully on you, uh, and to be holy in all our conduct, help us to uh, treasure you, um, not only with our thoughts, but uh, with our actions as well. And God, we thank you for your son uh, who was slain in our place. In his name we pray, amen. All right, so um, in 1860... A ship went aground on the shore of Lake Michigan in the winter, so cold, lots of cold. And a man named Edward Spencer, he's from Illinois, actually. Uh, he's a student at the time, and he went back and forth into the waters uh, to help people out of the boat who couldn't get offshore. Um, he helped around 17 passengers, is what the report says. Uh, he'd wade back and forth into freezing cold waters in Michigan, so it's very cold, severe temperatures. And in the process, he actually injured himself. Uh, his health was permanently damaged through all this. Uh, the report didn't say what happened, but uh, years, years later, he died. Uh, it was that serious. And it was noted in the report, and this is a quote from the article, not one of the people that he rescued ever thanked him. We kind of think, wow, kind of a bunch of jerks to not thank someone who just got rescued from. I mean, it wasn't like a life or death thing, but even something as small as helping you get out of the cold waters. Uh, he was injured by that, and he was killed uh, years later, um, and it affected him, but... Uh, no one ever thanked him. No one ever said, hey, thank you for what you did. I appreciate that, uh, at least according to the report. Uh, even a simple thank you card or anything. But we would think that was rude. But the question is, uh, do you think these people's lives were changed after this happened? Um, and if you're like me, probably for a little while, when something big happens in your life, uh, maybe a close relative or family member dies or something tragic happens in the world, our lives are changed quickly uh, for a short time. We want to make the best of our time. We don't want to... Uh, think about the small things anymore, and we try to make these big, great changes, but they only actually last for just a few weeks or maybe a month or so. And as Peter uh, has expounded on verses 3 through 12, he's given us a huge list of God's salvation. So it's better than just being saved from frigid waters, being saved from death and from hell and from God's wrath. Um, and here's kind of how Peter summarizes everything. In verses 1 through 2, uh, we see that this salvation has taken, it started before the foundation of the world. Uh, we see that God planned this. All parts of the Trinity are involved in saving you, so we get to partake in the harmony of that. Uh, verses 3 through 5 remind us uh, that our salvation is God's great mercy towards us. Uh, now we have a living hope, the Bible says, uh, through faith in Christ's resurrection, and that eternal reward is kept for us by God. Verses 6 and 7 tell us that our faith is what we have the reward. That's how we get the reward. And in this life, God will strengthen that faith to encourage us. So he will uh, design trials to uh, grow our faith, to enlarge it for him. And that's his design. It's not random. It's actually designed by God. 
Verses 8 and 9 talks about how in that we'll receive the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls and inexpressible joy. So we see the thought process. In verse 10 through 12, Peter says, to top it off, all that faith, all that salvation has been talked about since Genesis. It's been spoken of, it's been in love, uh, and it's been in God's mind, it's been in love with his people, and he's had this in mind for thousands of years. So Peter just doubts us in all this truth uh, to change our hearts, to uh, help us to love the Lord more and to trust him more and to see God's glory in all that he does. But now, in verse 13, Peter changes his tone. So he goes from uh, knowledge to our life. So Peter's point is, if all this is true, if you've been saved this way, how should you act? So the word therefore means, because of all this, how are you going to act? What are you going to do? Um, so Peter changes tone from information to response. Uh, Jesus once said, to whom much is given, much will be required. And I think we can bring that to the means of salvation too. Uh, God has given us much. He actually gave us himself, uh, his son. So God requires not just part of us, he requires all of us to serve him, to trust him, and to uh, live in a holy life as he has called us. Uh, so God's not just saved us from a temporary shipwreck and freezing cold waters, as that would be bad, but he did save us from something greater, uh, and that's out of sheer grace. So we're called to respond to that. Um, John Calvin once said, The gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. Now Peter's going to turn us from the knowledge, from the tongue that we speak, because we believe these things, we have faith in these things. Now he's going to turn us just from faith to turn us to action. So if we respond to the gospel, here's how our lives should look. And Peter starts with our hope in Christ. So if you look at verse uh, 13, Peter starts. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So if you, I don't have kids, but if you do have kids, uh, even just telling a small kid something, I, I know this by, uh, by doing as well. If you ever tell a child something you'll do for them, they always remember it. They have a weird memory. They just trust you as your word. So you can tell them, hey, in two days, I will take you to the zoo. And they will say, okay, in two days, I'm going to the zoo. And they will think about it. They will they'll believe the extra word. They'll take you by faith to believe the extra word. And then they will, in the next two days, think about it. They'll look forward to two days from now. They'll be trusting how, hey, one day... You know, not today, but tomorrow I'm going to the zoo, and they'll think about that, they'll remember it, they'll actually look forward to it. And what's interesting is they will come up to you and say, hey, today's zoo day, and you're going to think, crap, I forgot I scheduled that zoo day. And what's funny is kids know these things. They, they take you at your word, and then they hope that's going to come. And what's neat is kids teach us what faith and hope are. Uh, faith and hope are the same thing, but they're different. Um, so a good way it's been said uh, that I have heard is faith accepts and hope expects. So faith is accepting or believing what was said, and hope is expecting it to come true. So he told the kid, you're taking him to the zoo. He accepts that, says, okay, I'm going to go to the zoo. And his hope, he's expecting that to come true. So that's what faith and hope are. They're almost the same, but they're, they're different. And Peter just laid out for us this great salvation, this great mercy. And we're called to expect, not just believe it, which we're called to do, but we're called to expect it. So again, Peter says in verse 13, he says the word, therefore... Prepare your minds that you're hopefully on the grace that we brought to you. Uh, Peter starts with our need to prepare our minds to be sober-minded. Um, I don't know Greek, uh, but the Greek word here used is, it's, it's like a phrase. It's used to gird up your loins. Uh, and we don't usually dress the same way that the saints of old do. Uh, they would wear robes during that time. And what they would do is when they had to run, prepare for action, uh, they would pull up the slack of their robe and they would tie it on around their waist, kind of like a mini skirt. They pulled it up through their belt and tie a knot and kind of run so they had shorts on from a rope to shorts. It's kind of the visual uh, you get. 
And Peter tells us to do that with our minds, to kind of pull our, our skirt up, pull our robe up and tie it like a knot to be able to run. Uh, and I kind of think that's odd. I don't really understand what that was meaning. There's a verse in Exodus that God says that's very helpful, uh, really put together. You don't got to go there. I'll read it to you. Uh, Exodus chapter 12, God's about to deliver the final play, which is the Passover. And he gives them uh, the instructions to, uh, to kill the lamb and then to eat it and to use the blood to cover the doorpost to be saved from God's wrath. And here's what he says uh, about eating uh, the lamb. He says, in this manner, you shall eat it. So after I just said, you're going to eat it. And with your belt fastened, and that word, that phrase literally means with your loins girded, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. So the Israelites were eating, they were doing the regular thing, uh, they were, but they were actually ready. They were eating, but they had their staff in their hand, had their sandals on, they're ready to go. They weren't just hanging out lazy in their, in their recliner, they're actually ready to go. So they were doing their daily thing, but also ready to work and ready to move. So kind of the question is, as Christian, are you ready for God's appearing? Are you expecting his deliverance? Do you, do you live in hope of that? Um, do you think that he will come back soon? Because he will. Um, do we live in expectation of that he's coming back? I think oftentimes we, just, we know he's coming back. Uh, we believe it, but we don't hope. And we kind of just think, well, yes, he will come, but it's not going to be for a long time. It's after I do X, Y, and Z. Um, and we're called to not let anything hinder our hope. Peter says to prepare minds to, uh, to be sober-minded, to be thinking clearly, to be ready, uh, to be aware. Um, our hoping in Christ um, is our faith applied to him in our lives. So if we believe in him, we hope in him, it'll affect our life. We're called to start with our minds. So Peter says uh, to hope for the coming of Jesus. So the question is, do you live in hope of this? I think a lot of us do want Jesus to come back. Uh, we do. We, meant, we want to see him. We love him. We treasure him. But a lot of us kind of think, okay, I hope he comes back after I lead a, a bigger church or after I make more money or after I go to the World Series or after I have five kids or after I complete school, um, after the honeymoon maybe. And, 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 and all these things we think and we hope maybe God will come back. Hopefully he'll come back soon. But we want him to come back on our timetable. Well, you can come back, Jesus, but let me go do this first. And I think we all sin in that way, as I do as well. We think, well, Jesus, I love you, but I want to finish some stuff here first. I'm ready, but I want you to wait. Um, and I think when we, do, when we do that, we show ourselves that we don't actually have our minds fully fixed on Christ's return. We're more fixed on us. Our, our lives are kind of tangled with the world. Uh, it's not wrong to have those things or to want those things, but we miss gold them. We put them higher or lower than they need to be. We forget that Christ is He's our hope. He's our reward. And he's what we're here for. We're exiles. We're not here to live on the earth forever, but to be taken from the earth at some point. I think we forget about that. So what's the cure? How do we, how do we hope? Um, how do we do this? I think the end of verse 13, Peter gives us kind of the cure um, of how to do this correctly. So um, gird your minds, prepare your minds for action. Be somewhere about it. So think clearly. Uh, be aware. And he says, to set your hope. And here's what he says, at the grace, on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I think it's great that Peter says the word grace. So if you think about the, the last 12 verses, he just talked about salvation. It's not a view, it's of mercy. It's God's work. It's a faith that God gave to you. God's working. God's doing all these things. And the object of our hope is the grace revealed in Christ. The salvation is holy of God's grace. It is uh, nothing of us, nothing that we should cause us to have any part of it. Um, we didn't deserve anything, but God has given to us freely. 
So compared to the grace we have on earth, which, is, which are great things, we have the things that we hope in, um, but we're called to hope in the greater grace, which is Christ revealed. So I think we oftentimes get too distracted by the smaller things. And we don't hope in the Son. We don't hope in our, our true King. Uh, we get too stuck in the creation, not stuck on the Creator. And, and that's our problem. Uh, we're, we're supposed to wait for His appearing, to hope for it. So we believe that He will come, but does, is your life affected by His coming? Uh, do you think about how often you sin or how often you wander? Or does it convict your soul that you don't think about Him as you should or treasure Him? And I think Peter's telling us to do that. I think he's saying to set your hope on the grace. And I think that will draw us back to the fact that Jesus is good, He's gracious, and He is our soul's desire because He is coming and He is ours. So kind of if that is true, if hope is uh, basically like faith but applied to your life in action, how does that impact you now? What, is, uh, what does Peter want us to do? I think he starts with who we are in Christ. Um, if you know who Bob Dylan is, uh, he has a song called, you got to Serve Somebody. That's a pretty well-known song. And here's how the end of the lyrics go um, in the chorus. He wrote this. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Uh, a lot of people know that song. It's very well-known. Um, so the, kind of the thing is, is everyone is obedient to something. Uh, we all obey. We all submit. We all honor. We all take reverence. Everyone put that. We all do those things. Uh, we're all under the power and influence of someone or something. In Christianity, for uh, Christian words, we use the word idolatry uh, in reference to that mostly, especially when it's not God. Uh, the, in, in the Ten Commandments, God's commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. So the question is, all of us obey something, but what is it? How can you know? Um, all of us have idols. Christians have idols as well. We don't like to say that, but we do. Um, but the question is, we don't think an idol is like a, you know, my, my first thought is, well, it's like a small statue in my room or it's a graven image outside of the courthouse. We don't, those are idols, but also our idols are um, things you can't maybe see or grasp. But let me give you an example of one so you can kind of see where idols are and how they work. So let's say that uh, you like to look good in front of other people. You want to have a high status. You want to be recognized for who you are, be a big shot, whatever, pride, you can put that in there. Uh, you want to look good. Uh, you want to have a great reputation. So how do you obey that idol? What do you do? to point you towards the idol. How does that look? So here's what you would do to show that, show that you obey this idol. Uh, you would lie to cover up mistakes. So if you did something bad, you would say, oh, I didn't do that, because you don't want to look like you did something bad. You want to look good. Or in your lying, you do the opposite. You actually exaggerate good details. So instead of making 10 points, you scored 30. Right? So you exaggerate even better things to look better. Uh, maybe you steal or take things that aren't yours to look ha happier, look healthier, look better. Um, or maybe you continually lust after more things. You think that you deserve more approval by more things. So we kind of see how the things you want, you serve it in a different way with your life. You actually sin, and you sin in order to have your idol, which is also sin. So it's weird how that works. But there's one type of idolatry. It's very common. And you see how it rules your life. It controls your thoughts, what people think about me. How can I do this to get more approval? Uh, whatever your God is, we all obey it, and we all serve it and for it. Uh, adultery makes you act in such a way that your God is. So again, if it's, if it's about people loving you, you're going to do everything it takes to have them love you. And if you don't, if they don't love you, you're going you're gonna to be crushed. You're going you're gonna to lose it. And we identify with those things. So if, if people do recognize us, we feel great, we feel happy, we feel peaceful, we feel fulfilled. And if we're not, then we drag away and we feel depressed and awful. So look at verse 14. Uh, Peter calls obedience. And obedience falls with your identify with. So verse 14, uh, Peter says this. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 
So Peter says two great things. He says, obedient children. And he says, your former ignorance. So Peter calls us, he, he calls us children because we are children of God. If you're a Christian, you're a child of God. Uh, and you're obedient. You're not just uh, one of God's stepchildren. You're his actual child. You are his. He adopted you. You identify with Christ. You are his. You're obedient. So everybody's obedient to something. As a Christian, you are adopted into the household of God under the name of Christ. Now, think about what a privilege we have to be in the household of God. First uh, John, uh, John says, how great is to be called the children of God. So he's pumped. He's excited just to be a child of God. And that's our identity. So before the foundation of the world, you were adopted by God, according to Ephesians chapter 1. He planned your rescue, he, he, just like Peter did in this chapter as well. So think about that. How could you not be obedient to God who saved you? Think about your, your position in Christ. You weren't of him, and now you're in him. And he did that wholly of himself, nothing that we deserve. And it's neat because even in suffering, this letter written to suffering Christians, remember that. Even in this, what does Peter call for? Obedience. So suffering is not a gateway to say, well, God's not being good, so I won't be good either. And we think that, but obedience is actually what we do in suffering. We, we remain obedient regardless of suffering, regardless of how hard it is. We remain obedient. And I kind of think, well, why is that? Because that's really hard. And when suffering happens, we think God's not in it. We think he's not good. We think he's angry. We think he's non-existent. But we do that because of our great salvation. And Peter, just, he, he hits that every single verse. Again, verse 13, he talked about Jesus will be revealed and he will save us. He will rescue us. It is coming. And obedience here is actually kind of neat how that works. It's actually like a small sliver on earth of what the coming redemption is like. So if you obey Christ, if you obey God and you, and you delight in him, obedience is not really a bad thing. You actually like it. It's not hard to obey someone you love. It's, I mean, you want to do that. You want to please them. You want to honor them. You want to show your love for them. And obedience to the Christian, there's times where it's hard, but we love it. We love being obedient. We want to follow Christ. We want to hate our sin. We want to treasure him. We want to know him more. And it's kind of a taste of the coming grace that we're going to have. So picture in eternity, uh, you're obedient to God with no temptations to sin. You don't have to fight in your heart to, to, to love Christ more than your idols. There's no idolatry to worry about. There's no striving for holiness. You're, you're in it. You have it. So obedience now, as great as it is, it's going to get better in eternity. It's going to be easier. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be your nature. It's going to be great. So Peter calls for obedience here. And it's actually a foretaste of what we'll have. Uh, we'll live in forever love and friendship and joy with our great God and Savior. In verse 14, Peter has the second half of that. So as obedient children, remain obedient. He says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So every Christian has a former life. Every Christian was a once was and now they are. Uh, we're not different than sinners, but we have new identity. We're a new creature. We're a new creation. We're not better, but we're, we're made new. And how often does your old nature want to be served? This is being served daily. You have thoughts that just don't make sense. You'll think of things you shouldn't be thinking of. Your actions will show, what am I doing? Who do I really obey? Uh, and in times of those, we're called to remember our identity in Christ. You're no longer of the world. You, that is your, your formal ways of ignorance. That was your ways in unbelief. Now you're in belief and you're in Christ. You're no longer in the world. You're out of the world. As Ephesians 2 says, Paul says you're no longer following the ways of the world. You're in Christ. God made you alive. You're not dead to him. You're alive to him. So every Christian has a formal life, so don't go back to it. It's your formal life. It's not you. Uh, you're now united to Christ. You're called a son or a daughter of God. You're adopted by God. You are of his household, and you're called to be obedient, and it should be a joyful thing. 
So this is a command. Notice that Peter's giving you commands. Now, first he was giving us facts. Jesus saved you by grace. You've been born again. You have faith. It's being trialed. But now he's saying, be obedient. Don't be conformed. Be obedient, right? So now we have commands uh, to obey God, to trust him. So what is obedience? What, what does it look like? How would you just illustrate this very simply? What, what does obedience look like? Because I get it, Peter. I should follow you, but how? What do I do? What's a basic understanding of obedience? Uh, again, I'm going to take you to the book of Ephesians, if you would listen. Uh, I'm going to read about three verses, and they're kind of long, but I think you'll get the point. Now, here's what Paul says in chapter 4. He says, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. So we see all those things, almost the exact same thing in that verse. But the next thing Paul says is great. In chapter 5, he jumps immediately to chapter 5. And after saying all these things, he says this. Therefore, so we have the same word, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So children of God imitate God. Children of God to be like their father. And that's the picture that Paul gives us. Uh, you have a new nature, which gives you new obedience. You're required to reflect the nature you have. So the Christian life is really becoming what you already are. It's kind of weird. Christianity is complicating sometimes. But in Christ, you're a new creation. You're made new. You're holy. But now you're called to be what you already are. You are holy, but now you have to be holy. You are new, and I walk as you're new. And it's kind of this weird already, not yet again. I think we covered the last time. But we're called to be what we already are, to be holy, to not conform to your passions of your old way, but to conform to your passions of your new way. So Peter asks in this, in this next verse for obedience, and he tells us what that looks like, to imitate our Father. Look at verses 15 and 16. Peter goes on to the next point. He says, So, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So there's a lot of commands. There are a lot of uh, use of the word holy. Um, and Peter's going to enlighten us on that. A lot of people have heard of the expression uh, the apple doesn't far, far, fall far from the tree. Or maybe you've heard, like father, like son. It's kind of the same thing. And the phrase depicts the similarities that children often have after their parents. Um, a lot of our mannerisms, our thoughts, even our likes and interests, um, actually happen because of our dad or our mother. And what's always funny is we, we always say, I will never be like my parents. And sure enough, I stand here guilty. I'm just like my father. I'm just like my dad many times. Um, and even uh, the stats show that even our sins our parents commit, we often follow. It's very odd how that works. We're so tied to our parents that we see and model after. We even walk in their ways, even in their air sometimes as well. But Peter calls us not to walk in air of our formal life, of our formal identity. We are children of the devil before we're saved, as First John says. So don't conform to that. You're called to be transformed as obedient children, to follow the likeness of our God and Father, to be holy as He is holy. So the question is, what is holiness? I think we all say the word. We may know it's in the Bible everywhere. Uh, we call it the Holy Scriptures. We call the Spirit the Holy Spirit. So what is holiness? Um, it doesn't just mean pure or set apart, which those things are true. But in respect to God, it means God's otherness, His Godness. God is vastly different. He's set apart from His creation. It's His Godness. He's, he's completely set apart in every way, shape, or form, and everything that He does. So it means pure and holy, but also set apart, also that God is his godness, his otherness. So as he who called you is those things, and who saved you is those things, 
We are called to be set apart from the world as well. We're called to be the otherness of the world. We're called to stand out from the world, to be apart from it, um, and to be separate. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, he does call us elect exiles. So we are already other people. We are set apart um, of God's choice favor. So Christians should stick out in the world. And you don't belong here, so you should, you should stick out like a sore thumb. It's kind of saying you should look different. You should be set apart. Um, you should stand out. You should be noticed because you are God's prized gem. And notice that's commanded here by God. He commands this for us. It's not just a recommendation. It's a command. Uh, even though we are already holy, we're called to be holy. And the hard part of that verse is in all your conduct. It's not just in your action that people see, but it's in your thought life. It's what you do in your home. It's what you do when you're bored. It's how you think. It's how you treat your wife when no one sees you. It's how you act with your kids. It's how you walk in school, how you at work. It's all your conduct. It's not a license to sin that we're made holy. It's a license not to sin, to be holy. So when you're, when you're set apart as a Christian, you shouldn't want to sin. It actually gives you a license to say, hey, I don't have to sin. I want to be holy. I have desire to be holy. Obedience begets our holiness. So as we're obedient to God, it'll give birth to holiness. If we, if we follow Christ, we'll be more holy. If we're more holy, we'll follow Christ. It, it pairs up very well. So we're supposed to follow the nature and the likeness of our Father in all of our conduct. Uh, hate your sin. Uh, hate your former ignorance and delight in your Father. And what's interesting is multiple times the Bible says things like this, to put your sin to death, uh, to, to kill it. And I think I always ask, well, why, why does he say that? Because God has put your sin to death already, your penalty of sin, on Christ. And he will put sin to death finally as coming. So he's supposed to copy and mimic that. Put your sin to death now. It was put to death on Christ. It will be put to death in the future. But you need to put it to death now. So we're called to follow God's example God's model. But what's neat, what's neat, what's sad is that Christians don't actually look like Christians most of the time. Uh, there's a sad stat. Uh, there's a Gallup poll, which is a nationwide poll uh, in America. As of 2008, 80% of Americans identify themselves as Christians. And as of 2015, the number dropped just slightly. So as of two years ago, 75% of Americans say they are Christians. And many times I think it's because we assume Christianity is just easy. It's natural. I was born in the church, therefore I'm a Christian. I go to church. I do good things. I have a Bible. Um, we think holiness or being a Christian is just easy. I, I hope we should ask yourself, if being a Christian seems easy or natural, are we really a Christian? Christianity is hard. It's, it's against former passions. Yes, there's joy and obedience and there's love for Christ. But Peter's commanding us to be holy and not to conform to our passions of our former life because it's hard. We'd be told not to do it because we're prone to do it. So be holy in all of our conduct is not an easy thing. Conforming to the world is easy, and we do it oftentimes. So daily we're called to fight for holiness in all of our conduct, and that requires our hard effort, but ultimately it's God's grace that carries us through. We work our hardest we can. We fight. We run from our sin. We kill it. We're angry at it. But ultimately, it's God's grace that will keep us from sinning, that will carry us through when we fight it. So holiness is hard. The Bible actually says this in Hebrews 12, to strive for holiness. And I always think of that verse when I think of holiness, and I look something up. Uh, it's kind of a scary word. Uh, the word strive in the Greek actually means aggressively chase or hunt down. And it's actually used in the New Testament the most times in the instance of the word persecute. So when people are persecuted, it uses the word Strive. It's the same word that's used. So striving for holiness is aggressive behavior. It's not just, I'll just sit here and, you know, I won't lie. I'll, 
I'll, I'll let God carry me. God's, we're saved by grace all the way. God will carry me through. I'll just, I'll sit back and watch. I'll put an autopilot. I'll just hang out. Holiness is an active fight. It is aggressively pursuing the Lord. It's taking hold of the cross. It's girding up our loins to run, to chase him. Holiness is not an easy road, but it is a happy road. It is hard to be a Christian, but it is the happiest delight of the life of a person. So the second half of that verse that says strive for holiness, it says this also. So strive for holiness in Hebrews 12. Then it says, without which, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So it's required by the Christian to be holy. And think about how happy we will be when we finally see him. When we strive for it now, we will have him later. How happy will you be when you see that you no longer have to, have to strive for it? One day there will be no former life in heaven. You don't, you don't have to worry about that. There will be no more wrestling with your former life or having to fight your flesh. You will be happy. You'll be perfectly happy and perfectly holy when Christ appears. So as you're in the world now, we're called to be exiles, to be hopeful and to be holy. That will cause us to be happy as exiles. We're called, even in suffering, we're called to be obedient. God says to gird up the loins of your mind, to actively set your minds upon the grace of Christ that will be revealed to us. And as children, we wait. We imitate our Father. Like Father, like Son, we're called to reflect Him, not to conform, not to give in, but to fight and to run, to take it aggressively. We're called to strive to be holy, to actively set our hopes on the coming of Christ. I want to read one more verse in Hebrews to kind of close this out. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So Jesus' death is what ultimately sanctifies us. That's what sets us apart, and that's what sets us apart actively. It sets us apart then, and continually sets us apart now. If you remember in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 as well, Peter says that we are sanctified or set apart or made holy by the Spirit himself. So as a Christian, you're called to pursue it, but you already are holy. You're called to grow in it, even though God is growing you. It's this idea of we work, God does all the work. Holiness is, is it's a project that requires our obedience, but God's grace. And in Christ, we have that. So think about this. God performed such a great salvation to rescue you. He has foreloved you. He chose you. He set you apart. He called you by name. He gave you ears to hear him, the faith to trust him. He granted you everlasting life by the death of his son. His resurrection secured our eternal inheritance and our glory. And God continues to grow your faith now through his means of suffering and trials. And we see what the prophets never saw. We see Christ in the scriptures revealed. That's a great, great salvation, great glory God worked for us. And in this salvation, he has set you apart to act, actively pursue him. So if we think the gospel is great, do your lives reflect that? Do people know that you're a Christian because of the gospel you believe, the gospel you live? I think we should know that those are both true, but you should be living out what you believe. So in this great salvation, we're called to be set apart, to actively pursue the Lord, and to know our great God by how we live holy in all of our conduct. So in light of this gospel, we are to be hopeful, and we are to be holy, and we shall live as happy souls in the midst of suffering, pain, and our elect exiles here on earth. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for the chance to, uh, to see your son as he is. Um, God, we thank you for opening our hearts to understand Jesus, to, um, to have faith, to believe in him. God, help us to be holy. Help us to strive for holiness. Um, I pray that you would grow us in our holiness as we walk in it. Uh, we thank you for your spirit, which um, gives us a new heart and new will. It changes our actions. 
You give us a desire to serve you. God, we thank you for obedience, for the gift of holiness, and for your Son who will come and who is coming. Help us to trust in you, uh, to hope in that moment, and to live our lives according to the gospel that you've saved us with. And to your sons, let me pray. Amen.